Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. And my name is Brooke McCallery. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Ben McCallery and welcome to episode 205 of this very fine podcast. Oh, we're very fine indeed. We're very fine. We're very fine indeed. Particularly today where I talk to Dr. Monty Badami. Okay, so yes, you talk to Dr. Monty Badami. I do not. Where? Uh, tell me a bit about Monty. Where did you meet him? Okay, so Monty is, he's an anthropologist. He's a celebrant. Okay. He's a kung fu instructor. Maybe not kung fu, but he's a some sort of martial arts instructor. He's a he's training to be a army officer in the reserve army corps. Okay. He's been a bouncer. <laughs> There's not much that Monty hasn't done. Okay, so Monty is fascinating he's and so a multi potentialite. Obviously, he is. He definitely is. And well, I met Monty at Dr. Arne Rubenstein's camp that I did mm-hmm. earlier this year. And you interviewed Dr. Arne uh, back last in episode year. ninety-one. Okay. I interviewed. So this is like a nice little follow-up. So this is along the lines of that sort of rite of passage, and yeah, like a community type mm. building. And that's why this one's called Community. But Monty, as an anthropologist, is fascinating about his his questions around community and what that entails because I know that that is a challenge for us, right? So we're, we're trying to live this slower, mindful life, but how do we surround ourselves with like-minded individuals? And community is one of those words that we throw around a lot and really passionately so because I think that it, it's the backbone of, of a lot of the changes that we want to see happen mm. in the world. But I think this will be a great conversation for people to really crystallize what that means it's kind of one of those nebulous important ideas that we're like okay but what does that mean what does that look like in day-to-day life how does that impact me am i part of one am i part of many how do i create one how do i join one it really challenged me because i my concept of community is a bit broken i think right and i and that's that comes up in the podcast to say i was like well why don't we have we've got all these tools like technology and everything else that you know basically deliver us into these communities but for some reason we're still lost we still struggle and Monty's got some fascinating ideas Mm -hmm. now Monty is not a slow person he's very fast but his idea around being mindful and being very intentional about what he does yeah I think it's just really really valuable it'll probably resonate with a lot of people too who hear the the title or the the idea of slow and they're like, I don't, I'm not slow. I don't want to be slow. Exactly. It's not necessarily about pace, is it? It's about right pace, not slow pace. Like Carl Honoré always says, it's about finding the right pace. Carl and Monty are, are very similar, I think. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Very similar guys. That's great. Yeah. So we will put a link to the uh, the episode that you did with, with Arne Rubenstein as well in the show notes. And does Monty have a website? Absolutely. So MontyBadami.com, Monty with a Y, B-A-D-A-M-I.com. That's his website. And you can check out also his podcast, his new podcast yeah. with Dr. Tim Dean, another terrific bloke. And it's on iTunes. It's The Meaning Of. So if you search for The Meaning Of, you'll get their podcast, which is uh Really, really interesting. And if you're you're keen on hearing more from Monty, that's that's the place to go. Monty's also holding a camp, a rite of passage slash father son camp in November that I'll I'll be involved in on the twenty fourth to twenty sixth of November. I'll include his email in the show notes as well if you're keen to to find out more about that and what he's doing because it's some some really good stuff. And I'm 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 wanting to work with him more and more on that sort of stuff. Mm, absolutely awesome. Before we get into your conversation, I just a really brief reminder about the speaking of community. Yes, thanks for that segue. Uh, the Live Life Simply online retreat is in its final days for registration. It's, we're closing the uh, the registration on the twenty second of October. So if you're listening to this on the day that it's released, you've got two or three days to to secure your space for the first ever online retreat. So you can head over to livelifesimplyretreat.com for all of the details. Uh, But essentially, we have pulled together some of our favorite 
people to talk about uh, every element of slow and simple living. So we are initially the genesis of this whole idea was we would love to run an in-person slow living retreat. Yeah. Who would be there? And we yep. listed all these people and we're like, that's never going to happen because they live literally all over the world. Yeah. How can we make this accessible to everyone who wants to be a part of it? Let's bring it online. So that's what we've done. Uh, a couple of really common questions keep coming up about the retreat. People are saying, you know, I live on the other side of the world. I have jobs. I have kids. I have other social commitments. How can I make sure I don't miss the seminars as they go online? The good news is from the 23rd of October, the day that it opens, you have access to all of the seminars from day one. So you can dip into them at any time that works for you. There's also audio versions of it so you can listen to them offline. Lots of fantastic resources like workbooks, PDFs, you know, resource lists, that kind of stuff that are going to help you take what you learn in your seminars and actually apply it to your daily life. Yeah, so you've got basically six weeks. Six weeks to access all of that. I think at the end of it, you also will just get a a download of all the resources Exactly, so it will be yours to take with you. It's just the retreat itself will be running for six weeks. Included in that is a Facebook group. That is the only thing that will be happening in real time. We're having live, live yoga classes once a week. We're also doing live mindfulness and meditation sessions at least once a week and live Q&A sessions as well. So if you've got questions that you're coming up against as you work through the through the, the retreat and the content, you can come in, ask your questions, and we will answer them for you. I'm so pumped for oh, it. So am I. I'm what, are really... you, what are you going to present on? What are you presenting on? Well, I'm doing a few actually, but mm. uh, one of the biggest obstacles to letting go of clutter is the ethical consideration. Of clutter, so I'm going to be talking through all the different options for letting go of our stuff without putting it in landfill, uh, because I know that's something that really stops people from letting go. And I'm also going to be walking through a presentation, actually, on on three slow living rituals that you can add to your daily life, regardless of how busy you are. That is just going to help you to find those little pockets of slow and peace and, and ease, even in a you know really full day. Nice. Yeah. Very so good. we've got uh, we've got Alex Stewart, we've got Jess Monan, we've got Janelle Burley Hoffman, Kelly Exeter, Kevin Jenks, uh, Ben, you'll be there. Uh, but go to livelifesimplyretreat.com for the full list of contributors and to secure your spot. And uh, you, you can also drop us a, an email from there if you've got any questions. But we would love to see you there. In the meantime, uh, enjoy Monty and Ben. Dr. Monty, welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. Hi, Ben. Mate, it's fantastic to be talking to you, but I I wanted to firstly uh, go through some of your the jobs that you currently have, which, is, which just <laughs> blows my mind, mate, every time I look at it. Your business card is best practice business card in terms of <laughs> detailing what it is you do. Mate, you are, you are a doctor in <clears throat> anthropology. So yeah. you are a, a university lecturer. Mm-hmm. You're, you're also a celebrant. Mm-hmm. You're a jazz singer, <laughs> ma- martial arts instructor, and you're studying to become an officer in the Australian Reserves. Mate, yeah. yeah. What do you do? What do you do in your time off? <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> Hey, uh, yeah. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. It, it's uh, it, sometimes it looks like a slightly psychotic business card. Um, uh, I think uh, the reason why it's so detailed and in depth is because I had to take on quite a few different jobs as I was working my way through my PhD, which I was really passionate about, but uh, unfortunately. It doesn't really pay a lot of money. So I took on all these different things to help me augment my income at the time. And as it turns out, they've uh, lived on into my current uh, into my current career, which is wonderful. That's fantastic. So, mate, just a bit of background for the listeners. We met mm-hmm. up at um, Dr. Arne's Rubenstein's uh, Rite of Passage training camp, mm-hmm. leadership training camp back in yep. July or June, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And I met you. We were, I was in the car driving up his very steep driveway, arrived, and I see this big guy with the biggest (laughs) smile on his face and just saying, welcome, 
You're meant to be here. I love that you're here. <laughs> Can't wait to see you. Are your family coming as well? And and the impression that you left on my family even was was amazing. So tell me a little bit firstly about that camp and I've had mm. I've had Arnett on the podcast before, but mm. why why did you get into that um, rite of passage space? Well, look, as an anthropologist, it's kind of a natural uh, evolution, I suppose. Uh, I think, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I do things like celebrancy is not just because I love it, like I'm a massive mushbag, right? Like I kind of get into I get into romance a little bit. But anthropologists study ritual. We study uh, culture. We study, uh, you know, how we make sense of ourselves and our, our place in the world. They study uh, how we communicate with other people, uh, how we communicate with other groups, how we learn from each other and how we put all this stuff together to give us uh, opportunities to be able to adapt and change to changing environments. And ritual's a big one. Yeah. So what, what tell me, now, my understanding is, and you've sort of sort of lent on it a little bit, is your mm. your academic career. You're wanting to sort of focus more on community engagement projects, like the ones that you did with mm. Dr. Arna. What does that look like for you at the moment? What are you sort of doing in that space? Yeah, look, I think I need to foreground this a little bit in terms of my own story. So, you know, I, I'm really passionate about anthropology and I'm really passionate about learning and teaching and, and sharing uh, uh, wisdom and experience with people. And this is one of the reasons why I became a lecturer, an academic at university, because I, uh, when I was an undergrad, to me, that was a really meaningful profession where I would go and, and, uh, and share experiences with different people in all parts of the world and then uh, come back and help people in our own country sort of develop at least some understanding of, of the diversity of life and the importance of diversity. Mm. But over time, uh, the, the career, the profession, the industry of academia became much more hollow, much less meaningful, much more uh, market-driven, much more business-oriented mm. and much less about those meaningful processes that drew me to it in the first place. And that's kind of why I, I had a, a bit of a moment where I, I questioned who I was, what I was doing and where I was going. And it was yeah. at that point that I decided that I wanted to take all the skills that I, I had accumulated, you know, whether it be, <clears throat> uh, you know, the ritual theatre of, of celebrancy or, you know, the performance of singing or, you know, using movement and uh, in martial arts or even the resilience training of the army to bring all those things together, all the things that I love to do and use them in one space. And that's where I turned to the idea of, of you know, running rites of passage and building community uh, and building people's uh social and cultural and emotional capital so that they can use the support networks in community to be able to deal with change and to be able to deal with uh, the challenges of everyday life. One of the biggest challenges for Slow Home Podcast listeners uh, through a recent survey that we, we put out was finding community, finding like-minded people to connect with. Do you think community is broken in Western society today, in Western culture? No, I don't at all. I, 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 in fact, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, I see a lot of people lamenting the loss of community whilst community is all around us in various ways. <laughs> uh, and I think one of the problems is that we, we, one, we create this false dichotomy between traditional community and modern community. Mm -hmm. We ignore the fact that, that, you know, in reality, our modern existence is often a continuation of traditional forms and that traditional forms are constantly changing anyway. But one of the things that I noticed when I was uh, uh, living in Sydney, we now live in, in the beautiful south coast of New South Wales down in Kiama. But before we moved, we, we, would, we lived in like a townhouse and you know, my wife and I, who we'd just come back from from living in India, doing our field work, and it was just, you know, reached with community, if you mm. will, right? Mm. So we came back and we're living in Sydney and we're like, oh, my goodness, there's, there's no connection. <clears throat> and it occurred to us that you can't simply wait for that connection to happen. Mm. You have to go out and make it, uh, uh, especially in places like Sydney where, where, where you know, people are, are – are kind of they're, they're not really encouraged or they're not really guided on how best to to capitalize on the on the social networks that are around them beyond just doing it electronically so you know even when we were living in sydney we went out of our way to try and make connections to create community because you can't identify like-minded people until you go out and meet a good cross-section of people mm. So tell me, uh, you touched on your travels in, in South India and I've, mm. I've 
heard a little bit about it, but I would yep. love for you to share a story about mm. what you did there and some of that those fundamental community sort of you know discoveries that you found in their application <laughs> now. Yeah, wow. So uh, that's a massive question. We spent uh, uh, three years, eighteen months in field over a three year period. Uh, my wife and my my then six month old son lived with me for a bit, and uh, it was really one of the most challenging, but one of the most rewarding experiences. Um, certainly, apart from from having children and meeting my wife, uh, living in that environment and and getting giving myself the opportunity to to really connect with people who are so different. It was really meaningful. Mm. That's the reason why I became an anthropologist. Now, just to give you a bit of a, an idea that the community that I worked with, the Pania in South India, they were uh, they were an indigenous group who were slaves until quite recently. So even though slavery was abolished uh, in the uh, 19th century, it kind of continued under the guise of indentured labour. So this is a per very particularly marginalised group of people. So they suffer from a whole range of, of health issues, social issues, uh, uh, political issues, economic issues. <clears throat> and my first introduction to them was when I was an undergrad, actually, uh, uh, in a different in incarnation as, a, as, a, when I, as I was training to become a psychologist. Right. And I, I had the opportunity to go on a, on a diagnostic research, research tour to this part of India down in the south in a place called Vinard in Kerala. So I don't know if you know, India is like a peninsula. Mm. And on the southwest coast, you've got this amazing coastline, Kovalam Beach, Kerala, really, really gorgeous. And then just like uh, you go up into the mountains, you have this, this mountain range, which is called the Western Ghats of India. Now, the Western Ghats is also known as the Spice Bowl of India. It's absolutely rich with vegetation you it's it's a very uh, important part of the world from the perspective of the colonialists because that's where they grew all the stuff that drove the spice trade the dutch east india company the 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 english spice trade as well so you know it's a it, it, there's a lot of reason why lots of people wanted to be there and there's a lot of reason why lots of people needed to have a cheap labor force or or at the very least an indentured labor force so there are all these reasons to keep this particular community marginalized and dominated and suppressed and so, you know, we rocked up to do our psychiatric research tour and I was, you know, all, <clears throat> all uh, uh, I knew everything because I was a, you know, second year psychologist. It was pretty funny. But we got there and we were looking at things like schizophrenia, psychosis, depression, but we were looking at them and people were not telling us that they were depressed. They were not telling us that they, you know, would hear voices. They would talk about things like spirit possession, for example. Or they would talk about, you know, feeling depression in the body, that it was it was bodily pain. And, mm. and it got me uh, aware of the fact that, you know, people don't experience our existence or they don't experience this concept of mental health or physical health in the same way around the world. And it drove me to find out more. And I remember it being a particularly poignant period of, of my life because uh, it is such a beautiful place, so rich. You can smell the, the, the cardamom and the vanilla beans mm. growing. It is amazing. You can smell coffee and tea growing. You can, you know, it's, it's, it's a national park, so there are animals walking around. Like you, you actually see wild elephants walking past. And, and one day I was sitting by a river just sort of taking it all in and, and as a, as, as a, you know, third year or second year uh, psychology student. I'd recently read Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. I was sitting by the river and watching it all flow by <laughs> and contemplating the meaning of life. And, and, and I just wanted to capture that moment. I just wanted to hold on to a piece of that moment. So I went to the river and I picked up a, a river stone. I put it in my pocket and I went, uh, I went on my way. Mm. And uh, uh, we found ourselves walking up the hill from that river to, uh, to a small tribal hamlet. And, and it's, it, to, to this day, uh, it's one of these experiences. Just It, it sits with me. It's, it's vivid. The memory is, is, is uh, uh, like I can, I can picture and feel every moment. <clears throat> mm. But we turn up to this, this, this village and one of the tribal elders came up to me and started talk, making a bit of small talk and I started small talking back and then he, he sort of just pointed to my pocket and he said, uh, listen, I think you've got something of ours. And I, I, I was kind of confused and certainly the, uh, the people I was with were sort of like, you know, dude, what are you doing? This is, this is not kosher. You can't be stealing things. <laughs> he points to my pocket and he pulls out the, the river stone and he said, this is ours. And I, and I was kind of confused. I didn't know how he knew, um, you know, and, and my, my I've, I've thought about all these different scenarios of, you know, he was potentially watching from above or whatever. I mean, there's all these different rational explanations. Monty, how but big was the stone, though? 
Are we talking about like a pebble? Oh, well, it was about it was about half a fist size, I think. Okay, all right. So it's not and, uh, it's not bulging not, out of your pocket. No, no, yeah. it's not bulging out of my pocket at the time. So, so you know, this is something that could have quite easily been hidden. Mm. And he picks up the stone and he says, you know, the thing is that uh, that our we we actually really value these things. We value this is a part of our earth. We value our earth, and and you can't take a part of our earth, a part of us, without taking the stories and the the meanings and the values and the history that's locked within it. Mm. And he said, you know, but you're not ready. And so he tied it up in a knot. Uh, uh, he used a little bit of a uh, little bit of twine, tied up the stone with all its secrets, and he gave it back to me and said, "When you're ready, come back." And it was a really weird kind of thing to happen at the time, especially for a, for a psychologist who you know had very particular ways of understanding things. And I, I won't go into the story of how the stone unraveled. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. another story. I'd love to save it for another time. But uh, but what I will tell you is is that uh, years later, when I came back, and this was a, a good ten years later when I came back to do my PhD in the area. I learned the value and the importance of stones mm. for this particular community. So, for example, when someone dies in this community, what happens is that uh, that they believe that their spirit goes back into the earth. <clears throat> and part of their cosmology is that uh, that that for particularly important ancestors, mm. that that something about their story needs to come back into the world to help guide us and direct us and help us understand our place and, and to understand where we've come from, to understand where we are and where we're going. And so they believe that every so often like small pebbles or stones will come into will will come into our path. And those stones uh, are often uh, symbols or representatives of their ancestors. Now, uh, the more uh, heroic or the, the ancestors who have more uh, didactic stories, of, they have stones that are not only associated with the name of the ancestor or the story of the ancestor, but also geographic locations. Mm. And what happens is, you know, by understanding the stories of the ancestors, by understanding the uh, historical uh, situation of those ancestors within an, uh, a genealogy, by understanding the uh, geographic location of very particular ancestral stones or penna stones, as they call them, what they create is a very rich uh, and complex tapestry or, or, or cosmology or understanding of, of geography, of history, of ecology. So they can associate these stories with, for example, whether or not the ancestor was poisoned. So maybe there's poisonous fruit or or, or non-potable water or, or maybe there is there is a particular kind of medicine in the area. Uh, and it's a very similar process that's used with Indigenous people in Australia, where they have, you know, uh, uh, song lines and and uh, and stories that actually create like a geographical landscape, which is not simply a topographical representation of of space, but it's also a deeply embodied understanding of memory and history, uh, ecology, uh, cultural knowledge. And it's, a, it's one of the ways through which non-literate cultures can capture so much information mm. and be able to transmit that information to the rest of their community. I mean, it's a beautiful story. I just, oh. I just love, love hearing that, and I've read it from your, um, your diaries as well. I, I, I want, I want you to to put a lens on that story now and talk about why it is. And you've touched on a few elements which are missing in in Western culture about that community piece and bringing in the the symbolism and the ancestry and the geography and everything else what do you, why is the struggle so real for us in today's society in in finding meaning in our lives do you think that the missing link is these very symbolic historical mm, you know these touchstones is that is that what's missing for us or or is it something else uh, look, I always, uh, and this is why I say said from the start that I don't think that we are uh, deprived or bereft of community and symbolism and culture. Mm. The, the problem with being a dominant culture, a normative culture, is that we, we, we render our culture, well, I won't say we render it invisible. What we do is we don't, we're not cognizant of it. Mm. We don't acknowledge that it actually exists and it's there and it's bubbling away all the time, which is why we're so sort of uh, uh, sensitive when other cult, we come into culture contact with other cultures we don't see our own culture operating because we live and we breathe it in a non-conscious way 
Now, the thing about anthropology is that we don't just study like ritual and symbols and all that sort of stuff. We also look at the the body and how the body has evolved over time, including the brain, for example. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, the the idea that that the brain has relied on culture. Yeah. Culture has been this culture and language and um, symbolic artifacts and tool use, etc., has been such an important uh, uh, feature of our development and our evolution as a species that in many areas it can overtake biological evolution or biological development and so the thing is that as as a community as a as a society sorry we actually do have a whole heap of enculturated forms we're just not conscious of it and and i think it's also important to not romanticize or exoticize the enculturated other that we see say in a, a tribal community for example like i was living with people who had a really awful existence mm. every day they had to struggle to find meaning every single day it's just because they have what we consider to be a visible culture doesn't mean that existence is made easy for them mm. not at all that's a really good point yeah people are struggling with the the demands of you know contemporary existence you know uh, uh historical existence how to form identity formation is not something that goes away because you have a song or you have a have a have a ritual or you have some sort of symbolism to bind your sense of identity or your belonging to a group. It doesn't, it doesn't resolve that easily. And this is why even having something like a symbol or a, or a name or a, you know, or a mm. salute to define yourself, it, you know, w- once you scratch the surface, you, you realize that isn't the thing that keeps you bound. It's the everyday interactions, the form, the sense of belonging and the interactions and the connections you make with people mm. that really give you that, that, that opportunity to, 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 you know, muddle through our existence together. Uh, uh, these are this is the the the, the heart of, of what we know in anthropology is the uh, existential phenomenology. That it's not just these symbolic forms or these sort of intellectual uh, uh, ideations of culture and being and humanity that that give us a sense of purpose and and value and help us to to make sense of our existence. But it's it's the the very act of being and doing and living in the world with other people. You know, the, the, the experience, the phenomenology of living that we unpack, we process, we, we try to understand, we reject uh, ideas of our existence, we pick up new ones, we muddle through it and we co-construct meaning through interaction. Yeah. And so it's that interaction that it's, that's at the heart of it. And we do have symbolic forms. We do things symbolically all the time. You know, like uh, <clears throat> I, I think I have similar mnemonic processes when I move around space. So I drive around and I might drive past the place where I used to live as a kid and there were all these memories and all these uh, sort of messages that come into it. Or I drive around the place, you know, when I, I remember my parents having a fight, for example, or where I had an experience with a, with a girl or had an experience with a good friend. And there's a, there's a whole canon of information that's locked within my, the, the way that I symbolically represent simply space, geographical space. But we also represent symbolically imbibe a whole heap of other things with power, things like the, the clothes that, that we wear, the words that we use, the names that we give ourselves, the objects that we that we value in society. Uh, so we do operate on these very deeply symbolic levels, but I think that we just tend to ignore it because we assume that we've moved past it mm. in our modern existence. I'm, I, it, ignore and the ignorance thing, I, I, I would challenge because... It's almost like we thrive for that simplicity. I mean, it, it sounds like what you're saying is we just need the answer is to be just more mindful, to be more present about accepting these these external things that are happening in our lives. But I think the, the key is that we need to, to sort of more simplify and be mindful. That's what I got out of that anyway. Well, uh, look, and it highlights the fact that we, as a diverse society, we can all get so many different things out of th- out of, of what we might say. We can get so many different things out of our interactions. This is the point, is that we will have this interaction and you'll take something away that is meaningful for you. And it might be actually quite different to, to what I would take away from it. So, for mm-hmm. example, I, I tend to avoid the, the idea that there are answers. 
as such. I'm an old uh, sci-fi fan, so I, the closest I come to a Bible is uh, is Douglas Adams, the Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy, right? So I think I don't know that the answer and the question can can coexist in one uh, yeah. existential plane. Yeah. But uh, but I I think no, it's not about the answers. It's about constantly asking the question. It's mm. about constantly thinking. Well, you know, and, and perhaps this connects to a form of mindfulness where we that we we can appreciate the things that we take for granted. Uh, about our existence, but I think that the wonderful thing is that is it that for me it's not about the answer; it's about the ability to ask the questions. Mm. For me, as that's a real existential benefit of being a human, is that I get to ask those questions, and I get to ask those questions of you. I get to ask those questions of my wife, of my best friend, of my my son, my daughter of the people that I work with. And this is the impetus behind me having so many different interests, mm. doing so many different things. I joined the army because it gave me the opportunity to meet people I would never ordinarily meet and ask them, how do you find meaning in the world? What do you do to get by? What's it all about? And that's the beauty for me. That's the beauty of our humanity and living in this society, this society which is not homogenous, which is quite heterogeneous, in many ways, I mean, you know, we can talk about monoculture and cultural imperialism, but we have exposure and access to so many different ways of being. Mm. And that gives us so much potential as a community. It's that diversity, the ability to imagine uh, doing things differently, the ability to, to challenge the way that we've been doing things all the time that gives us the opportunity to uh, innovate and to find creative solutions to, to environmental change or social change or emotional change or personal change. How do you find time to slow down, Monty? That's what I <laughs> want to know. <laughs> well, this is the other thing, isn't it? So I, I'm a singer. I'm a martial artist. Mm. Uh, I'm a parent. Um, I'm really lucky. Uh, I'm, I married. Uh, I married someone. My my wonderful wife Lara. She doesn't give me the option, right? So, <laughs> she uh, she knows who I am, and she puts the brakes on when she when she sees that I need it. And you know, we support each other, obviously. But uh, but uh, the way that I slow down is is through thing. Like I use creativity. I use mm. music. I get lost in the moment of crea- of, of musical improvisation. Or, or when I'm doing martial arts, I'm doing Tai Chi or, or martial arts, I get, I sort of get really lost in that embodied form of movement. And sometimes it takes a bit of effort to, to mm. step out work mode to be able to do this with my family. But, but I know that, that once I do hit that switch and I'm immersed in, in the, the craziness and the messiness and the noisiness of my family, that, that uh, I find that extremely rewarding and meaningful. It really just helps to reset those priorities. Absolutely. Uh, you spoke beautifully be, a couple of months ago. We were we were talking about something, and you said, "Oh, this weekend I'm having a daddy daddy daughter weekend," <laughs> which I absolutely loved, and I've now adopted. <laughs> Tell me about yeah. that, how that came about. Yeah. So, uh, look, uh, I mean, so it's funny as an anthropologist and as an academic, I kind of. Uh, I, I, I'm really lucky I'm able to, to uh, use the connections between biological processes, social processes, political processes, personal processes, emotional processes, and, and relational processes, right? So this is, this is the beauty of being an anthropologist is we're kind of a, a jack of all and an ace of none, but we like to see things mm. holistically. And so I sort of sit back and I think, you know, I've been really busy lately. I need to spend time with my daughter. Uh, well, I need to spend time with my kids. I need to give them the focused attention that not, that not only I, they crave, but I crave. Yeah. So that we can get to know each other and develop our relationships. I mean, I do a lot of work with adolescents and, and young people. One of the issues is is about relationships of trust and relationships of openness and communication that we have to try and develop in the teeny. And I think, well, you know, wouldn't it be better if we started earlier and tried to hold on to that and build that build from there? So we made a decision that we have uh, mummy son, mummy daughter weekends, daddy son, daddy daughter weekends, and the idea is just focused attention for the whole weekend where we just do what they want to do. We just hang out. We get to know each other. We spend time with each other. And and uh, uh, so my daughter, she, we we she likes uh, the idea of camping, but not kind of my kind of camping that I'm used to. <laughs> <laughs> like glamping. It's a clamping, yeah. It's glamping. It's yeah. wickedly. It's 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 funny. It's a it's a really interesting. When 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 La, Rory and I went away, we had like pampering and glamping and mm-hmm. and 
Uh, so we had uh, we went for a, a pedicure and a manicure, and uh, then we had a facial and a massage, and then we went glamping. But my daughter loves eating my army rations, so we're sitting in this amazing <laughs> tent. I know it's really messed up. We're sitting in this amazing tent, we're, and, and just gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, just uh, just over at Huskisson, and, and 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 we're eating bloody dehydrated rations, and she's just loving it. But it was such a beautiful weekend. We mm. had no, you know, no phones, no pressure. It was we allowed ourselves to be idle and be lazy and just be with each other. Uh, I think this is a, a this when you talk about mindfulness, this is a really important characteristic of that we, I think we, we can lose when we get far too busy and goal oriented. Mm. This is one of the things I challenge at schools is that we need to have space where we can just be idle, have fuzzy thinking, and just that that's the uh, the the necessary ingredient for creativity. After you know all this, these ideas and things are, are percolating in your body. It's that downtime where you can just sort of sit and be where things emerge and and so with my daughter and I that's what we do we sit we play games we draw uh it sounds you know it doesn't sound like there's a lot going on but it's beautiful it mm. creates things it creates memories it creates conversations it creates opportunities it creates connections and and not only is that good for their their cognitive development at young ages but like it actually really helps with the way that we relate in, on an everyday level like we'll spend a week and i'm not saying that you can treat each other like crap all year and then spend a weekend together and that's fine that's fine yeah yeah that's not what i'm saying at all what i'm saying is that you build a relationship of respect and trust which means that when you ask each other to do things or when you have demands or when you have when you act out in ways that you're not you know that are not articulate or whatever that that you can trust each other to Think that there's a reason for it and you can work through it together and you know as i say I'm, I'm supposed to be a bit of an expert on kids but you know you walk past our house at eight o'clock in the morning as you're trying to get the kids ready for school and i can tell you what you, you'll be thinking different things entirely right <laughs> it's a it's a pretty crazy time right but what yeah. i notice i notice that after we've had a daddy daughter or a daddy son weekend it's just for some reason, my stress levels are down, their stress levels are down. We're connecting, we're communicating. And it's that connection and that communication that allows us to be able to achieve the task, getting kids to school, which mm. for any parents that they know is like wickedly crazy. Mm. I, I almost liken it to a mini rite of passage almost. You know, <laughs> you've got that separation. You and And do you spend those weekends, do you start talking about them as a person and what you you love about them i mean obviously you would you would you would get into those more deep conversations and those more deep connections yeah look yes and no like so rory's uh seven so mm. the conversations are going to be different mm. we play a range of games like uh, we've got games like obviously because i work with kids i've got a range of games that help to access the stories of kids and ha access feelings and she loves it she loves those opportunities we do drawing games etc um i think it's you, you, there is a level of age appropriateness that you need to think about when you're when you're engaging in those big questions mm. but I'm constantly surprised at the level of depth that my that my kids and the kids that I work with operate at. Like they're they're continually doing talking about things and thinking about things at a very deep level, whilst they may not have the language to express it. Once with time and with patience, we can really get to some really amazing topics. Uh, I think one of the things about a, a rite of passage is so this is again is about uh, 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 sometimes we tend to romanticise and exoticise the cultural. Yeah. And there's a tendency to want to, you know, see rites of passage in everything, which then kind of becomes complicated. This is one of the, you know, one of the problems with certain anthropological theories of rites of passage. People are starting to see things like brushing your teeth as a rite of passage yeah. or you know, there was something ritualised in it that enabled you to find it. And, may, and, and there, you know, there is a lot of stuff in ethnographic work which says, yeah, look, the mundane and the everyday is a very, very important part of how we develop a sense of ourselves and 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 the way that we interact in the world but uh, uh when i think of a rite of passage i think that it's about a transition mm. you know uh, a transition that uh, has been occurring for a long period of time but that we put a container around in order to give what is essentially a much longer transition give it a, a, a like turn it into an event so by turning it into an event, what happens is we allow ourselves the opportunity to invest meaning into it. Mm. 
to internalize that meaning and to do it in a way that allows us to remember the transition, even though the transition didn't happen in the event. Transition is happening over time, Mm. but we create an event around uh, aspects of that transition to be able to give meaning to something, to give uh, a container and a coherency to something that's actually quite complex and messy. This is the idea of, of, of having a rite of passage as such. And I think that, you know, uh, certainly what Rory and I do and what Baxter and I do is is kind of a ritual, but I'm not sure it's the same as a rite of passage. There's something ritualistic about it because we really do make it a thing. Yeah. We make it an event. But the difference between that and a rite of passage is that there is, a, there is an element of challenge in a rite of passage that helps to facilitate that transition from one stage to the other the, or, the, or the, the, the perception of that transition from one stage to the other. And, and I've got to tell you, with my daughter and I on our daddy-daughter weekends and daddy-son weekends, like there's nothing challenging about that. <laughs> yeah, maybe you need to stop the glamping and, and get the swag going, mate. <laughs> but this is a really important point: is that mm. is that there are age appropriate um, places through which you can in, in, embed rites of passage. You know, like and and for us at that stage, it's more about the storytelling and the connection and the community. And this is the thing: is that is that when you have a lot of these rites of passage, it's not just about the transition of the of the supplicant. Or the, or the person going through the, the transition. Everybody goes through a transition. You know, uh, as boys become men, fathers need to step out of the way and transition to a different phase. Grandparents, you know, when when uh, when kids get married, parents take on a new role as well. When mm. I when I do weddings, I actually had a wedding on the weekend, and and the bride and groom were like, "Oh, you know what? Our parents are driving us nuts." And I'm like, "Well, that's because it's not just you that's undergoing this transition." You know, what do they sort of symbolically feel as though they need to let? What is they? What do they feel like they're losing as you are gaining this uh, this wonderful uh, symbol? You know, and it's it's there's always that uh, that transition that's taking place on multiple levels. But what makes something sort of very cultural and social and and the beauty of ritual is that it is that it forces us to come together. It kind of creates a sense of importance around something or an event or a or a, a process that gives us a reason to come together. And it's that coming together to share stories and to connect and to communicate and to make sense of the messy stuff that is our existence that I think provides the real goal, the real beauty, the real richness of of community events or ritualised activity. Mm. It probably leads perfectly into your camps that you're actually going to be running Mm. and Mm. the first one being in uh, late November in Mm. South South Sydney, is it? Uh, Down in the south coast, so down uh, down. Yeah, yeah, past Kayama. Um, yeah, yeah. So as I, as I mentioned, I uh, underwent a bit of a transformation myself where I decided to leave academia and, and decided to start using all my skills and all my passions, really, uh, all the things that I enjoy doing in one space. And and this is where I came up with this idea of rites of passage for young people mm. as, a, as sort of like a, a flagship or an entry point to be able to start having really good conversations on how we can build community with community support in a way that is sustainable and in a way that uh, that offers growth and opportunity for you know a wide variety of people, not just the privileged, but offers allows uh, elements of, of privilege to be dispersed to people that don't have access to as much privilege. And so I thought, well, let's do some rites of passage camps as a way of getting people in and getting people connected to the idea of communicating and talking and and sharing stories and and growing together and making sense of things together. And and so. I I do a bit of research uh, and I discovered that there were people already doing it, which Mm -hmm. is fantastic. There's this wonderful kind of synchronicity or or zeitgeist, if you will, of of, of rites of passage emerging, uh, certainly in Australia at the moment and around the world. And and I discovered places like Pathways down in the South Coast and and the making of men, which is is where Anna was. And so I just sort of got cold, called them and said, Hey, folks, this is what I do. I'd love to do it with you. And, and that's how we built that relationship. And mm. they've both been supporting me to, to set up my own camps. Uh, so I start my first official camp on in November uh, from the 24th to the 26th of November. And we've got uh, uh, we're going to have some young boys and their dads and we're going to do a whole heap of things. To, to help us to create those connections and, and to, to share those stories and to, and to explore and learn through play and activity and to be challenged to grow together. Mm. But really uh, the, the, the key of those uh, events, those, those rites of passage camps that I'll be running is, you know, we have a lot of a really well-established, uh, well-studied, well-researched, well-facilitated uh, uh, program 
But at the heart of it, and it's, you know, very similar to the stuff you do with Panthers on the Prowl. At the mm. heart of it, the real benefit to the young young men, the boys, is that they know and feel that there is a community of safe peers and mentors who care enough to just show up and be there for them and to see them for who they are. Mm. Uh, and it's the same thing, thing for the men. You know, you can do all these activities, but ultimately it's this opportunity for men to just be themselves and to be seen for who they are and be accepted for who they are and know that, you know, good and bad, we we muddle through this existence together. And that's the the, the sort of uh, the real glue that binds the process and that drives it and creates that really emotional connection between participants but also to the event as well. So, yeah, so we, we're starting those up in November. We, we're headed down. We're doing a bit of camping. There'll be no glamping in sight. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> Rory won't be won't be there, but uh, yeah, we'll do, we'll do work together. We'll we'll tell stories. We'll sing songs. We'll we'll cook together, and uh, uh, I'm quite hopeful that we're going to have a fantastic time. And it's a beautiful time. I mean, just seeing. Also, Monty, what is the ages of the boys? Are you putting? Is there any limit in on that? Yeah, well, look, this is the first camp that we're mm. doing in the area, so we're actually opening it up to 13-year-olds to 17-year-olds right. uh, for the boys and their dads or a significant male mentor. Okay. Uh, the idea is that because I want it to be uh, uh, driven from within the community, we, we usually would run a five-day camp, but the first day camp's kind of more of a, a, a smaller version to just give uh, uh, our men a bit of help in understanding how valuable these these processes can be. And on the basis of that, we'll start making the camps bigger. Uh, we'll start, um, uh, I want to embed like a mentoring program that, that has well-vetted safe mentoring processes that allows us to connect young people uh, who don't have dads or significant male mentors in their life to connect them with with good safe healthy role models male role models that they can develop a relationship with with the family for about a year before they come on the camp so that that takes a bit of work from within the community as well but we also want to develop processes that uh, enable us to uh, uh, provide uh, similar camps and processes for people with disabilities for example we want to run them for mums and sons and for daughters and dads. And then our ultimate goal is to get beyond gender. But at the at the heart of it, we have to start small. Absolutely. So that, that's yeah. what we're doing in November. We're starting a little camp. And, and, and it is actually, it's it, for me, it's a flagship. It's connected to a much larger uh, sort of social enterprise that I'm trying to develop at the moment, which is about providing these experiences within communities, but also training people to be able to do them themselves in schools in 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 community groups in families even so that they can take you know the the like essentially the the privilege of my education can be shared with a wider audience Mm. and they can start doing these things in their daily lives as well and see the fact that we have deeply symbolic and cultural things going on right here right now that we can draw on we don't have to do things up that are completely sort of uh, foreign or, 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 or different to ourselves to be able to embrace our humanity. Um, that by virtue of the fact that we're here means that we are deeply embedded in our humanity. And there are all sorts of things that we can we can connect with in our already uh, very human lives mm. that, uh, that gives us the opportunity to maintain and, and create and support that sense of community, that sense of connection, that sense of personal and social growth. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait for it. Where can um, where can people find out more information or or sign up? Yeah, well, listen. At the moment, uh, at the moment, we uh, our website's under construction. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you get in touch with me directly, I I'll give you my personal email. It's montybadami at gmail dot com. That is M O N T Y. B-A-D-A-M-I at gmail.com. If you send me an email, I'll get you all the details. And very soon we're going to have a website up with uh, even more details. I can share those with you as well. Great. And I'll include all that and more in the show notes to this podcast. Now, Monty, where can people hear more about you? Because you've just um, you've recently launched your own podcast yeah. on iTunes. Yeah, well, I don't want to say it's my podcast. It's a podcast with my very dear friend, Dr. Tim Dean. Tim and I actually met way back when, in I think it was about 1994 at Macquarie Uni. We used to sit up the bar and talk about Star Trek and all things crazy. And we were basically were two dudes who kind of talked crap, and we've been talking crap ever since. We're both qualified to talk crap. <laughs> But really what we do is is kind of a, an audio representation of all the things that I've, I've discussed with you today. We, we get big topics, 
you know, the, the name of the, the podcast is The Meaning Of, and, and you can find that on iTunes and on, uh, on the other uh, platforms as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's the meaning of, and each week we take a different topic. So, for example, we covered the meaning of identity, the meaning of love, the meaning of music, the meaning of Trump, the meaning of race, uh, the meaning of time, and we and we just unpack it from two different perspectives. Tim as an anthropologist, as uh, Tim as a philosopher, sorry, and, and me as an anthropologist, mm. um, and and we just play around with big ideas. And at the heart of it, you know apart from trying to uh, unpack and explore and dialogue around how we find meaning in the world, it's also a great opportunity to uh, to develop our own skills and to model the skills of, of constructive and evaluative disagreement. We don't agree on a lot of stuff. Mm. And we can both be quite passionate about it. And the thing is that this doesn't stop us from having the conversation. Rather, it actually compels us to have this conversation. Mm. It draws us into this conversation. And and over time, we've developed the skills to be able to do it in such a way that allows us to grow. And, you know, hopefully when uh, people are listening, they have an opportunity to grow and and question as well. I think, uh, uh, you know, as I said early on, we're not so concerned with the answers, but we really value the opportunity to ask the questions. So, you know, when Tim and I get together, we sim- we kind of we pick a topic and then it's uh, it's like a tinderbox. A match is lit and then it just goes crazy. There's this explosion of questions and challenges and ideas. And bottom line is we have an absolutely great time doing it. Yeah, it's 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 a very, very good podcast. It's very, very entertaining. <laughs> and uh, I'd encourage listeners to check it out. I can't wait for the meaning of Star Trek Enterprise. That's what I oh. can't wait for. <laughs> Don't get you started. Don't yeah. get me started. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, like always. Hey, and sure. I've got probably... A lot more questions than answers, which you're probably right. pleased of. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll have to do it again. Mate, thank you. Thank you again. And um, I look forward to, to seeing you in November. Yeah, mate. Listen, I just want to finish with uh, just by saying one thing in terms of having questions. This is really important. What I, what, if, if, if there's anything that, that uh, uh, underscores all of the stuff that I'm doing at the moment, it's about uh, um finding opportunities to start conversations. So if this has been a conversation starter, this is what I want. I want this to be a conversation starter. And I'd love us to continue the conversation after the podcast. For listeners, I'd love you to continue the conversation with your friends and your family members or just people that you meet in the street. As I say, this is the these conversation starters and these questions are the, are the, uh, are the, the rich and fertile ground through which we have an opportunity to connect to real people in the world. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.